communicate to you that Jeremy Tyndall, who, who just, we just celebrated now, he's going to be giving his first sermon at the harbor here this morning. So give him another hand for, for taking a chance here and, and, um, and preaching this morning. So I just want to say that you guys are going to be blessed this morning because uh, of a couple reasons. But Jeremy has taught in our training schools and uh, is, an, is an amazing teacher. Just, he, he combines a real depth of kind of knowledge and understanding with a real deep relationship with the Lord. And so I really sense that, that uh, God's given him a great word this morning. And you're going to be blessed not only by his knowledge and by his ability to teach, but also by his humble, his real humble approach to his walk with the Lord and to those around him. So, Jeremy, I'm just going to pray for you, and uh, then we'll hand it over. Lord, thank you for Jeremy. Thank you for this humble man of God that you have gifted with this ability to teach, Lord, and um, to share just what you're doing in his heart and what it says in your word and that you want to communicate to us this morning. So we just release your, your words through him right now in Jesus' name. And, Lord, thank you that you're going to speak to us. And so fill him right now with joy and help him to be himself and just to have fun while he's up here. Thank you, Lord, for him and for you and for your word, for sending Jesus and for your spirit. I better stop. All right, in Jesus' name, amen. Bless him. Thanks, Brian. Oh, what a change. <laughs> um, for, for those of you who don't know me, which I think I know most people in this room, but uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Jeremy, my wife Rachel, and I've got two of the cutest little girls in the world. Uh, I think they're the cutest. They take it. So uh, they're running around, Layla and Ella, and uh, we've got a little boy on the way. So third time's the charm. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm involved in ministry here at the harbor in a number of different capacities. Uh, we have a small group. Uh, do a number of different things. I like to bounce into the college ministry every once in a while. I love college kids. They're so open. Uh, And I'm going to do a shameless plug for the college ministry. Nobody expected this, but I'm going to do it. Uh, I mentor college guys, okay? And it is life-giving. And so if you have that capacity, and I know that all of you do, uh, I'm going to encourage you, seek out a college student to mentor. It's really simple. It's life vision and giving them a place where they feel like they have family. And that's all it takes. It's all it takes. So don't be, don't be intimidated by it, uh, but seek out a college student because it'll change their life and it'll change yours for sure. Okay. I love the History Channel. It's one of my favorites, and I am one of those people that loves the, the uh, war history. Uh, I like to hear stories, and so I want to tell you one of my favorites. Okay? 1972, the U.S. government decided that they were going to insert a SEAL team into Vietnam with two objectives. One, they were going to do some reconnaissance They had to find this uh, base that was along a river, and they had to plot out the area and find enemy movement. And number two, their other objective was to try and extract some POWs. Uh, Big mission for, I think it was only like eight guys that they sent in to do this. Crazy, crazy. 
So they inserted them on, the, on one of the beaches in Vietnam late at night, and the, the team hiked into the jungle, and by the time morning came, they realized that there was a problem. It was a huge problem. They had been dropped two miles north of their drop zone where they were supposed to be sent. And so, uh, and then on top of that, there was even more of a problem. They had been dropped into one of the largest enemy movements in the area in the war. So there's eight guys, eight SEALs, with their guide, and they've been dropped in the middle of potentially, the numbers are fuzzy because they don't know exactly what was going on, but potentially two enemy battalions moving through an area, outnumbered by hundreds. So, sounds like a precarious situation to me. Uh, so they, they work their way through the jungle, and it isn't long before they're spotted, and they find themselves cornered on a beach, outnumbered and under enemy fire. So I'm going to read uh, part of an article that... Uh, this is from uh, VietnamGear.com. It's war biographies. Uh, this story is so uh, so famous. You can find it anywhere. Uh, the, the commander's name is Lieutenant Thomas Norris. And so he and his guys, over the next 45 minutes of fierce firefight raged, significantly, significantly outnumbered, and with the North Vietnamese lobbing grenades, team leader Norris ordered his men to begin leapfrogging their way back to the final dune, which is a process of moving strategically through the jungle. Thornton and two of the LDNNs made it, but Norris suffered a serious head wound and was left for dead by the remaining Vietnamese SEALs. So their commander is, is hit in the head, and they, just, they, they don't know what they're going to do, so they basically just leave him. Without hesitation... One of the officers, Edwin Michael Thornton, leapt to his feet and sprinted through a hail of automatic weapon fire to his officer's position, killing two enemy soldiers en route. Though unconscious, Norris, who six months earlier had daringly rescued a downed Air Force colonel, was still alive. Okay? And I've seen pictures of this guy. He's got some really serious scarring. It's a miracle that he lived through it. Lifting the lieutenant on his shoulder, Thornton ran back through the enemy gunfire and across 250 meters of open beach to reach the sea. So picture this. This guy has got his commanding officer on his shoulder, and he's running across a beach that's 250 meters under enemy fire, machine gun fire. So he gets hit twice, once in the upper body, once in the leg. Laden down with Norris's body and his own equipment, he swam out of the surf zone, finding one of the Vietnamese wounded and struggling against the breaking waves. So now he's got two guys, his commanding officer and one of his fellow SEALs is actually probably a guide. I don't know much about him. Despite being injured, Thornton somehow managed to tow both men beyond the range of enemy fire and swam for two hours. Until they, finally picked, they, until they were finally picked up by one of the junks that had originally inserted them. Two hours. Can you believe that? This guy was shot in the thigh, okay? So 
I love these kind of stories. Uh, they just kind of drive me into something. There's something internal inside of me that is drawn to them. But he's shot in the leg. He jumps in salt water. He's towing two guys for two and a half hours and gets picked up. So, naturally, he wins the Congressional Medal of Honor. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's an obvious choice at that point, I would think. So, he saves his commander and one of his other fellow soldiers in an act of heroism, right? Think about that. Man, I don't think I would have that kind of energy or that drive. So I pose the question, after hearing that, what is it about stories like that that draw us? What, what is it about these types of stories that resonate with us? And I think there's probably a lot of different answers to this, uh, but I'm just going to kind of focus on one, and it's really simple. I think we just love to hear about heroes. We love to hear about heroes. We love to be around heroes. Some of us long to be heroes. I know there's a few few of us out there. And I love that Brian talked about superheroes with the kids. Because when I was a kid, I loved superheroes. Like, okay, so it's only natural. You know, I, I like stuff like this. So I also like superheroes. And I love superheroes so much to the point where this is where you're, you're realization of just how nerdy I actually am is going to go through the roof. I had a book. I wish I could find it. I looked for it. I had a notepad where I wrote down all of my superhero stuff and drew diagrams because I was planning to be a superhero. Okay? I had designed costumes. I designed gadgets. My favorite, my favorite superhero is Batman although technically he doesn't have any superpowers, just a lot of money. Uh, but my favorite hero is Batman. So I designed all these gadgets, including you know grappling hooks that would shoot out my wrists so that I could be pulled from danger, the kind of danger you find yourself in as an 11-year-old kid. Um, and I dreamed about this. And I know that there's some of you that thought about this as well. I wanted to be a superhero. I love superheroes. And there's something inside of us that's drawn to that. So in this series, we've been talking about the names of the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 9. And Isaiah, he predicts that the Messiah is going to come. And he says, there's four names. Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this one that's right in the middle, Mighty God. What does that mean? Mighty God. We throw that word around, mighty, all the time. Kind of uh, in all different contexts. It's like mighty acts, um, feats of might or strength, I've heard. Uh, what does it mean? Well, on a very simple level, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the idea of might the actual words that are used there, uh, the word uh, means basically great ability. Uh, It means, we translate it might. It also means greatness. Um, It has a different, it means strength. It has a number of different meanings. 
But I think the clearest picture of how it's used in the Old Testament, especially, uh, is in the description of David's mighty men. You can read that description and read what these guys did. They're, they were crazy. One killed a leopard uh, with his bare hands, basically a spear in a pit. Uh, one fought so long that his hand froze to his sword. Uh, just crazy feats of strength. And these guys were described as mighty men. It's the same word. And so here, in the text of Isaiah chapter 9, we read, Mighty than God. And the word is El, meaning God, the original, the creator. Um, so, I'd like to, I, I don't have a lot of objectives in this, this time today. Uh, but I'd like to kind of paint a picture through Scripture of what this looks like and what they're talking about when they say mighty God and how it relates to Jesus. So if you have your Bible, uh, you can turn with me to Isaiah 6 is where I want to start. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. And I'm just going to use some of these passages to kind of like as, as points of connection, to bounce off of. Uh, we're looking at themes here. Okay? Give you a second. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And at the sound of their voice, voices, the doorsteps or the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, the Lord Mighty. I'd like to just kind of almost like stew in this passage for a minute, just because I think we have somewhat of a misconception when we talk about might and we talk about God. I think a lot of times we ask the question, what is it that makes God mighty? Which is an interesting question, but I think it's kind of oriented the wrong way. Because my thought process in this is God defines might. Right? So his person, who he is, is mighty, and that's what mighty is. That definition. We, we should be getting our definition of might from God. And so I'm just going to look at this, this passage, and I'm just going to bounce some things off of you. Number one, his presence is overwhelming. Back in verse 1, he's described as high and exalted. And the train of his robe fills the temple. It's his very presence reaches to the extent of his throne room. He's worshipped by heavenly beings. And, and 
I think on some level we all kind of fear these beings in some ways. Uh, but these beings are pronouncing his goodness and his holiness. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And when they proclaim this, the doorposts and the thresholds shake with the proclamation. You the gravity of that. His holiness, his goodness, who he is, his might fills the temple. His very presence fills the temple. And I think on some level there's a little bit of a, uh, it's a little bit reminiscent here. It says, and the temple is filled with smoke. Does anybody remember Exodus? When God is on Sinai and he's saying, and he's, he's giving the law to Moses. And the people are fearing because on the top of the mountain is smoke and lightning. And the very presence of God is so thick. It's, it's visible. I think this is kind of the reference that they're talking about here. It's kind of, it could be either. It's probably a little bit of both. His presence, but also the, the sacrifice of his people. And finally, he's worthy of worship. The prophet's response. This is a calling of a prophet. So he gets a vision of God on his throne room. And his only response is, Woe is me. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips. There's this, the, the very presence of God, his very person is mighty and awe-inspiring. It's amazing. And I'd just like to say, though, too, that the vision here, what, how God is portrayed, is kind of, in a, in a number of different ways, it's kind of limited, right? It's, it's a vision of a throne room, and you think, oh, his, his presence is filling the temple. This is a way that God chose to, to send a vision of himself to the prophet in, his, in a throne room. But his presence and his might is so much bigger than a throne room. He actually, I believe, he had to translate this for Isaiah so that Isaiah could see it. So Isaiah is not even seeing the fullness of who God is in this. He's seeing what he can actually comprehend and put down. But God's might and his person is so much bigger than that. But I, even though... We have to define might by, uh, by his character, by who he is. That's what might is. I think we can kind of see this in scripture too. And I'm just going to like machine gun fire almost <laughs> some uh, reference to you. Uh, just generally speaking, how is God portrayed? What does his might look like? In scripture, number one, he is the sustainer, creator and sustainer of all things. Think about the ability of God to create something and sustain it. Right? His very power sustains everything. That's what we see in Genesis. He creates a people after creating the world, after creating the universe. And then he creates. Uh, and, and functions in an environment that he's created and comes into that environment and pulls his people out. He delivers them. 
He pursues them. Exodus. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this. He's a king who fights for his people. You think about that. I think it's Joshua where the, the Israelites are fighting a battle. And God actually stops the progress of time so that his people can win the war. He fights on behalf of his people. These are acts of might. These are acts of who he is. And I think that's a huge difference. He's, he acts these way, this way. He acts in might because that's his nature. He's the only one who's able. And more so in, in, in an area that I, I think we identify with the most, like in Judges, he hears the cries of repentance from his people and he responds with redemption. So not only is God infinitely able, but he's also intimately involved. He hears our cries for repentance, of repentance. And I know that was like a rapid fire, and some of you are probably going, okay, I'm completely lost at this point. But this is how, I'll just take a a couple more examples. This is how the people of Israel, this is how God's people have viewed him throughout history, right? He's always been the mighty God. He's always been that mighty king, the mighty warrior. I think of Psalm 8, you know, when we talk about the liturgy of the, of the people of Israel, you know, their, their worship. What does their worship record have to say about who God is? Psalm 18, God is depicted as a warrior who rides across the sky and slaying his enemies on behalf of his people. It's one of my favorite psalms. If you, if you want to get a real good picture of just how mighty God is and what he wants, how he defends his people, that's one of the best ones. Psalm 50. He's described as the mighty one. God the Lord speaks and summons all the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it rests. All the earth. He's the creator of everything. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him the tempest rages. Think of the the might, just the sheer ability of God. The picture that the prophet gets here is just the picture of the king who has the who's the only one that has that ability on his throne a place of judgment in psalm 93 the lord reigns in majesty it's littered throughout the psalms throughout the old testament that god is a king who is infinitely able and defends his people can i just bring this to us just take a moment here and just say, this is who your father is? We think about it that way. This is who your dad is. He is the mighty God. He's a hero king. And I know that a lot of times when we look at passages like this, there's a I know I've thought about it, but there are other questions out there like you're sitting there going, okay, okay, I can see that. He's sitting on his throne. It's really intangible. Uh, 
But, you know, how can I, as a parent, parent well? Like, how can I find the strength to parent well? Or some people might be asking, where's my next paycheck coming from? Or you're a college student or maybe after. What do I need to do to be successful in life? Right? These are questions that we have. And I think sometimes it feels like it's very, like, picture of God is very intangible. It's very out there. But can I just take a moment to step away from the, the topic and just expose a lie of the enemy here? I hate how cunning the enemy is in this way. He doesn't deserve the credit. But this is what he does. He gets you to think that God is so far out there and, in, and, and not tangible that you think that you have to do it on your own. And he kind of feeds that, you know. You can take care of this problem. You can take care of that. It's not a big deal. I kind of liken it to an analogy of, <laughs> of a, a lumberjack going out to, to do a whole plot and saying, okay, and his boss hands him a spoon. Yeah, don't worry. You can do it. Here, here's your spork. Go cut down some trees. Not a big deal. Will take you a few thousand years. That's kind of what we, we do to God. Because if we think that he's so far out there, it's, tangi- it's not tangible. And we don't acknowledge his ability and his goodness uh, and, and his ability in our lives. A lot of times we rob him of the power to accomplish and to watch him work in our lives, right? As we say, oh, I'll do it. I'll just get my spork and I'll go out and cut down my trees. You're, you're not accepting the chainsaw to pick up a spork. And so, so that's where the enemy wants us to be. He wants us to say, oh, well, you know, God isn't interested or God can't fix this problem or worse yet, I can fix this problem, right? And so we fall back on our own devices, and we, we start to get frustrated. And then we say to God, well, why didn't you come through for me? So with this passage, can I just ask... Can we take comfort in the bigness of God? In the ability of God? Can God be your hero in that area? Just something to think about. But you're probably thinking, okay, why aren't we talking about, originally we're talking about the names of the Messiah, right? Isaiah chapter 9, that's about the Messiah. We got this vision of God, the Father, who's the king over everything, the infinitely able. But we're talking about the Messiah, right? You can nod your head, that's fine. I can see you. (laughs) I want to look at another passage, and we're just going to kind of bounce off this one as well. Matthew chapter 17. I'll give you a chance to turn there. It'll come up on on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we, uh, for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and the voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. What a weird passage pairing. <laughs> is, it, is it a little weird for you? I like the two together. Does it sound a little familiar compared to what we were talking about? Look at verse 2. So it's a description of Jesus. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes were white as light. Verse 5, the cloud, the cloud shone around them, basically, and the voice from the cloud. So the very presence of God, there's something kind of reflected like we see in the vision of, of the smoke filling the temple. Then there's Moses and Elijah who are there communing with Jesus. Why do you think they're there? You ever thought about it? Can I posit something? Both Moses and Elijah are men who saw God. You think about that? Moses was on the Mount Sinai for 40 days in the presence of God, getting the law. He communed with God. He heard God's voice. He saw God. And when he came down from the mountain, Scripture says that his face glowed with the very presence of God. He had to veil it because the people couldn't take it. Think about that. Moses, the very presence of God. The glowing, the shining. Sounds kind of uh, reminiscent of Exodus. And then there's Elijah. Elijah saw God. Despite being depressed and having you know, all these issues in his life, he pleaded with God, and he saw God. God gave him that. So these are men who recognize the very presence of God. Right? And they're there. I think it should be calling to us. Who are they acknowledging? They're acknowledging Jesus. You see the connection? We have this picture of the very image, or the very presence of God in Isaiah 6. And then Jesus reflects that presence to his disciples in Matthew chapter 17. It's a vivid picture of who the Son is. 
His very essence and nature reflects his father. His very essence and nature reflects his father. So what does that mean? That all of the ability and power and might of heaven came in human form. Let me think about that. You're like, oh, okay, okay. So some of you might be going, okay, I see a little bit of a connection. Let me take you to a passage that I think kind of draws some of this out a little bit more. Colossians 1. We put that up there? You don't have to turn there. It's up here. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation, all of creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, or rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Look at that. He's the creator. Look. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Everything. Right? He has all the kingly authority. Because he's the sustainer as well. All things are sustained by him. Now think about the gravity of this statement. Just look at it. All of the ability of God that we see in scripture is in the Son. We're talking the God in history, the one who parted the Red Sea, destroyed the most powerful kingdoms in history, raised up a people for himself out of the clutches of one of the most powerful kingdoms in history, and brought redemption and restoration to the world. That ability came in human form. And I think on some level, we know this about Jesus. I mean, we know the vision from Revelation uh, of Jesus in his glorified form where you know, he's, he's glowing and white and he has, uh, his garments are soaked with the blood of his enemies. We know this. We know that he's a conqueror. We know that that's part of who he is and that he defines what conquering is. But I think sometimes we forget that he's our hero as well. And so I'm going to be sensitive to time, uh, but... I want to look at one last passage, and I'm I'm just going to read it for you. Revelation 5, 1 through 8. I'll put that up there. Then I saw in the right hand of the one of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. 
See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I don't think that we can talk about the acts of a mighty king when we're talking about Jesus without talking about his greatest act of might. I think it's so easy to go to that picture of of Jesus as the conqueror. He's triumphed. But his triumph was through his sacrificial death on the cross. What an act. That the infinite God of the universe who holds all things together, whose power and greatness far exceeds anything that we could grasp or comprehend, would die a shameful death on behalf of his creation and our behalf. Can we think about that just a moment? I'm going to ask the band to come up and, and uh, get ready, start playing. But he came, he lived a sinless life. He took on the limits of a man and died a shameful death on the cross. That was all done through his might. And so, I say, mighty God, he's our hero king, right? Can I just share with you briefly while they're getting ready to play a place where the, my, where the hero king stepped into my life? And I'm not, I'm not going to spend a long time or go into a lot of detail, but I, w- I want you to hear personally. I was 19 years old. I was living like hell. I was depressed, living without a purpose, and suicidal. But God woke me up. And one night he appeared to me in a vision. And he stepped into my battle. He started destroying my strongholds. And he started conquering. And you know, he gave me a purpose. He gave me a life. He gave me a reason to live. He gave me a family. He's blessed me beyond anything. And he restored the relationship. So, where are you today?
is he your hero king? Maybe you need to be saved from your sin. Maybe you're walking in darkness. All you have to do is, is go to him. Say, Jesus, I'm, I'm broken. Step into my fight. Win this war. Because I can't win it on my own. I need you to be my restorer. Or maybe there's an area of bondage in your heart. Sin. A place where your fallenness actually hurts you and keeps you from thriving. He's your hero king. Don't live in the lie that you can handle it on your own. Because he desires to step into your battle. That's what he died for. It's not just so that you could go to heaven, but so that you could have a life of wholeness and fullness with your father. And that you could walk out and be an agent of the very redemption that he is working in this in our creation. So you have an area of, of brokenness that you need him to step into. If you do, I, I'd encourage you to find someone to pray. So if, uh, if you're uh, on part of the prayer team, you know, Bonnie and Beth, uh, come up here. But I'd like to open an invitation as we sing the next couple songs. Interact with your dad. Ask him, are there areas where I need to be whole again? Are there, are there fights that I'm trying to fight on my own? Can you be my hero king? you be my warrior and fight on my behalf and I guarantee you guarantee you he will say yes there's no doubt in my mind I've seen it so many times so I open up the invitation come interact with your dad find freedom